0: Father, we just prayed a dangerous prayer while singing. We prayed that you would teach us true humility. And that's our prayer. Father, please humble us. Show us your greatness. Show us your majesty, your splendor, your beauty. And we ask, Lord, that the natural response of our hearts will be to praise and to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but I'm glued to the Olympics at the moment. Someone else I glued to the Olympics, we, we have a house guest staying with us at the moment, and she's got an app which pings every time we get a medal, even if it's a bronze. So yesterday, I was just ping, 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 ping the whole time. It was great. Uh, I don't know what your, your favorite moment in the Olympics uh, is so far. My favorite moment is the uh, Rugby Sevens final. You might have seen it. It was Fiji versus Great Britain. And uh, what made it special for me wasn't the fact that we won. In fact, we got completely destroyed. I think, <laughs> I think the score was 43-7. to 7. It was really not a great game. Um, and what made it special wasn't the fact that it was Fiji's first ever medal. And they got a gold. That, that, that was great. But that wasn't what made it special for me. Well, the thing I loved about it was the fact that despite the Fijians being great. And believe me, they were great. They were faster, fitter, stronger pretty much everything better than we were. They were great. But despite that, they were determined not to forget that their God was greater. If you've not seen the match, go, go and watch it again on, on, uh, on YouTube or iPlayer. It's, it's extraordinary. Before the game, uh, the team gathered around in a huddle and they prayed. And apparently they prayed for humility. I think because they knew they are going to win. LAUGHTER um, <laughs> Whenever, whenever they scored, and they scored often, they, they, as soon as they put the, the ball down, and they, they, they didn't do a sort of a wild celebration like everyone else does. They, they, they pointed upwards. Glory to God. And whenever they, uh, when the final whistle blew, uh, even they they, won, yeah, they knew they won gold, when the final whistle blew, they, they gathered together as a huddle again, and they started singing a hymn of praise to God in the middle of the rugby stadium. And if you look at their team photos, you see they've got the gold medal in one hand and an arrow pointing upwards in the other. It's a beautiful scene. These Fijians, they were great. They were great. But they were determined not to forget that their God is even greater. And on the other hand, it's a pretty ugly thing, isn't it, when you see people who are enamored with their own greatness. You see that in football, don't you? Ugh, football. (laughs) It's a horrible thing. It's an ugly thing. When people are enamored with themselves, think they're they're, they're brilliant. But of course, I think as I've been prepping this psalm this week, I've come to realize actually there is a tendency in each of us, isn't there, to slightly draw praise and glory for ourselves. There's that that tendency in each of our hearts to to take the credit. And when we succeed, that's what we do, isn't it? When when things go well, we, we like to take the credit. When things don't go well, when things fail, we sort of push the blame Onto other people in our team. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as self made, self secure, self sufficient. We like to think we can stand on our own two feet. Thank you very much. I don't need anyone else. I think that's the natural inclination of our hearts to be persuaded by our own greatness. Well, Psalm 104 is a meditation by a very great man indeed. We we looked at Psalm 103 last week, which is also written by David. And you'll notice how this psalm, just as like last week's psalm, it begins and ends in exactly the same way. Look down with me at verse 1. David begins in Psalm 104 by singing, Praise the Lord, O my soul. And then look at the last verse. How does it end? Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Why is David repeatedly having to tell himself to praise God? Well, Remember that David is a very powerful man. He he is a king who had armies at his disposal. He was a majestic king who who would have lived in, in splendor and luxury. So if there was anyone who perhaps might have warrant for thinking he was great, it was David. And he knew that the natural inclination of his heart would, to be, would to be to believe his own press. To draw praise and attention towards himself. So what does he do? He has to remind himself that even though David is great, God is greater. Praise the Lord O my soul. If Psalm 103 was about salvation, Psalm 104 is about creation. And you'll see where we're going to go with your handout. Our first point is this. David's, sorry, God's power over creation. David begins by calling God's power over creation. Look down with me in verse one. Follow with me. Verse one. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. David's a king, right? So he would be no stranger to fine clothing. You can imagine he would have his own tailor, who every day would make sure he's wearing the finest embroidery, the best purple and gold, whatever colors king wore, kings wore bad then. He would look great. But as David considers what God wears, verse 2, he's robed in light. Suddenly, David's fashion looks slightly TK Maxx, not great. Likewise, David is no stranger to great architecture. In 2 Samuel, we read how he spent years and years and years building this amazing palace for himself. He he built roads so he could tear around his kingdom on a chariot to survey his his kingdom. But as David stops to consider God's palace, verse 2, he realizes that God's palace is all of creation itself. God threw up the heavens, a bit like I might throw up a pop-up tent in the back garden for my daughter. It's that easy for him. And God's chariot are the clouds themselves. It's a metaphor of how God surveys all that he has made in majesty. David, being a king, he would have had servants. If it was a hot day, his servants would have sort of fan him down. If it was a cold night, David's servants would have made him a fire. But God's servants, verse 4, are wind and flames themselves. You get the point, don't you? David is great. God is even greater. So David preaches to himself, Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. Praise the Lord. He continues in verse 5 Look down. He set the earth on its foundations, it can never be moved. You covered with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. You'll know that David was an expert military commander, he would have routed the Philistines over and over again. He always won his battles. He's an amazing military commander. But here, as he thinks about God's might and his power, it's about how God is victorious over an even greater enemy than the Philistines. Namely, the waters. And this is a bit weird for us, isn't it? The waters being an enemy. We need to know that the ancient Israelites, they feared the sea. They were aquaphobic. And that's because the sea, for them, it represented chaos. The swirling waters of chaos which can't be controlled. They are terrified of the sea. And so these verses here, they, they poetically describe how, at the moment of creation, God brought order out of that chaos. He, he separated the waters from the dry land, He, he set boundaries so, so that, that, that they won't break loose again. You see the point, don't you? David might be great in battle, God is even greater. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. Praise the Lord. I've been watching a, a documentary on BBC recently called Forces of Nature. Have you, have you seen that? Professor Brian Cox uh, sort of hosts it. He's this impossibly hip physicist. Somehow he makes physics look cool. Even more so than Christine, I should say. Um, LAUGHTER and in the series, he's sort of examining, I'm not a physicist, so correct me if I'm wrong, Christine, but he's examining the constants of the universe. So things like gravity, the speed of light, the particular charges between particles and atoms and things like that. And Brian Cox goes on to explain, he doesn't know who has set those constants. Wherever you go in the universe, they're the same. But he knows that if they weren't precisely what they are, then there wouldn't even be a universe, let alone life. It's the British astrophysicist, Sir Fred Hoyle, who said, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics, chemistry, and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. David psalm, of course, it's, it's poetry, it's not a science textbook, but he's just as clear that there is a creator. Someone has set those constants in the very fabric of the universe. Someone has produced order out of chaos. Someone has managed to pull life out of darkness and death. You'll recall the scene when Jesus is caught with his disciples on a boat in the middle of a storm. The disciples, there they're seasoned fishermen, yet they're fearing for their lives. The the waters are crashing over into their boat. They're crying out for help. They think they're going to drown. They think they're going to die. They're crying, Jesus, help us. Don't you care if we drown? And you know what happens. What does Jesus do? He stands up, and using the very words of verse 7, he rebukes the waters. (laughs) He rebukes them. And immediately, they die down. The disciples, they know this psalm, don't they? They put two and two together. They ask themselves, Who is this? Who is this? Whom the wind and waves obey. Friends, when we consider God's power over creation, that, that very power that Jesus Christ holds, when we consider that, we realize how foolish it is to think of ourselves as self made. How foolish it is. To act like gods of our own little worlds. How foolish it is to deny there is a creator. See, however great we might be, and I know there's some very great people in this room, however great we might be, God is greater. Praise the Lord, and oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Well, David moves on. In the next section, you see he kind of changes gear a bit. He's not so much talking about what God did back then at creation. He now talks about what God is doing now in creation, his provision for creation. And this is, I'm going to say, I think this is an important truth for us to get to grips with because I think it might be slightly <laughs> alien for us. Does anyone have a, a watch I can, I can borrow? Great, thank you. Here's a watch. This is Callum's watch. It's a citizen watch. There was a um, a philosophical movement around 200 years ago called deism. You might have heard of it, deism. And they they like to compare creation to an exquisitely designed watch, a citizen watch maybe perhaps, if citizen watches existed back back then. They argued that that you couldn't really deny there was a creator, any more that you could deny that this watch has been carefully crafted and put together intricately by a clever mind. You, You couldn't deny that, could you? they argued creation is like a watch. But they went on to say that God is a bit like a watchmaker who winds up the watch and then leaves it alone. Sorry. <laughs> if that breaks, I'll, pay, I'll buy a new one. You see, for deists, they, they, they argue that God is distant, disinterested, and effectively unknowable. God made the world and then he left it alone. We can't know God. He hasn't revealed himself. What can we know about him? Very little, really. David would strongly disagree. Look down at verse 10. And as I read it, notice how engaged our God is with his world. And notice how how he takes those threatening waters of chaos and he puts them to good service in his creation. Follow with me, verse 10. He makes springs, pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine. And bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests. The storks it has its home in the pine trees. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the conies. Or if your footnote says the rock badger. There you go. The rock badger makes an appearance in the Bible. You never knew it. Clearly God is not that distant disinterested watchmaker is he he's actively concerned for all of his creation whether great or small so notice how God waters everything whether you're the massive cedars of Lebanon which are like 40 meters high or the grass which the cattle eat everything is fed by God whether you're a great lion or a cattle a cow Everything is housed by God, whether you're later Leviathan, swarming around in the sea in the depths, or you're a goat on the mountaintops. God looks after everything, big and small. Do you know what? smack bang, in the middle of this psalm, David carefully places mankind. If you were to take all the verses of this psalm and then fold it in half, right in the middle... Other verses about mankind. And that's David's way of saying we are we are the center of God's creation. We we are the reason God has made everything, that that, that our hearts might be glad, that that our faces might shine, that that we might be satisfied with what God has made. And as David compares himself with this God, as David compares his kingly rule, people might come to David for for protection and, and provision, but All of creation depends on God. See, David's great, but God is greater. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. All of creation looks to God. Just follow verse 27. He says, These all look to you to give them their food at their proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. Friends, whether you're here tonight and you're a king, I don't think any of us are kings. Most of us might be paupers. Whether we're great or small, each of us have our lives in his hands. You see, he provides your every meal she might have cooked tonight, but God made the cow, which made that meal. Uh, he determines your every breath. You know, he, he gave you your family. He determined your education, which allowed you to get that job, which means you have the resources and finances that you have. You see, whether you love him or not, whether you even believe he exists or not, he holds you up in his arms and this is doubly true if we're followers of jesus just look at verse 30 it's clever it can be read in kind of two ways not only did god give us physical life but he also gave us spiritual life He not only put breath in our in our lungs that we might breathe in and out he also put his spirit in our hearts and he's daily renewing us by that spirit making us more like him so if you're, you're here tonight, and maybe you're not yet persuaded you can trust yourself to Jesus, well, consider this for a moment. Did you know you already depend on him for your physical life? Which means it's not that much more of a step to, de- to depend on him for your eternal life. Callum opened our service earlier on with those words from Hebrews. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer. And that's a lot of power, isn't it? I don't know about you, but the the very powerful people I've met often aren't very nice people. Often they wear that power. Often they, they push the weak down and they're disinterested in the ordinary schmoes like us. And yet when Jesus walked the earth, when the creator and sustainer of everything walked our earth, He didn't abuse his power. No, he didn't just hobnob with the important people. He wore his power with extraordinary humility. And he spent his time with the broken, the downhearted, the small, the equivalent of the rock badgers. So if you think Jesus is that distant and disinterested watchmaker, think again. If he cares for the mountain goats, he cares for you. If he has concern for the birds and the trees, he shares your concerns, whatever they might be. Friends, this is a God you can entrust yourself to because your life has already been entrusted to him. You're already depending on it, whether you know it or not. Well, we've seen God's power in creation. We've seen his provision for creation. Finally, David closes his psalm by considering God's permanence in contrast with creation. So as I read verse 31, follow with me. Notice what endures, what lasts, and what doesn't from verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Some things in life, they, they appear very permanent, don't they? But upon closer examination, not so much. Verse 32, David describes how the mountains, they're the very symbol of immovable power, aren't they? If you've ever seen Alps, or the Alps or the, or the Andes or something like that, they just seem immovable, ancient. And yet here in verse 32, before the Almighty, they shake and tremble. Verse 35, even proud sinners, perhaps people enamored by their own greatness and importance, even they will vanish from the earth on the Day of Judgment. There's a drama at the moment on, on BBC again called Versailles. Is anyone following, following that drama series? It's about Louis XIV. Yeah, Claire East is. Yeah. And uh, you might know Louis XIV, his, his court in Versailles was incredible. It was the most impressive in the whole world at the time. Uh, Louis, arrogant man, he titled himself Louis the Great. He gave himself that title. Not posthumously, but he gave himself that. And uh, he famously declared, I am France, I am the state, he used to say over and over again. He died, of course, in in 1715, but his funeral was spectacular. He had this golden coffin in the midst of this cathedral. And he gave very strict orders before he died that at his funeral service, there wasn't to be a single candle or lamp in the entire place. It was to be, in, in effect, darkness apart from a single candle which would rest upon Louis XIV's, Louis the Great's golden coffin. It was to symbolise his greatness, his light, his power. When the Cardinal got up to preach, he ignored the, uh, the warnings and the protocol and he leant forward and snuffed out that candle. And as he did so, he said, God alone is great. God alone Is great. You see, however powerful or great or important we might think we are, however movable we might feel on our own, we will not last, we will not endure, and everything which we try and build for ourselves will one day crumble (laughs) into dust. But the Lord alone endures forever. And not just the Lord, but everyone who puts their trust in his son. Hannah and I were out on the heath the other day. And uh, we saw a sort of funny scene. There was, there was a, a father, and um, he was with his, his uh, toddler son. It wasn't Ross. And uh, this, this boy was really kicking off. It was really, you know, so much that so everyone sort of stopped and sort of looked. You know, th- th- this toddler, dad was sort of holding him up in his arms. And this toddler was sort of punching and kicking his dad, lashing out at him. It was really funny. Um, but... <laughs> My daughter's not like that. Um, but it was also futile. It was funny, it was funny, but it was also futile. It's pathetic. But it was also folly, because the dad was holding up his son, even as he rebelled against him. Well how foolish of us to rebel against the God who holds us up in his arms. How foolish it is to try and live our lives pretending that we are self-made, self-secure, self-sufficient. It's foolish because one day God will treat us like adults and he will give us what we ask for and he will let go. Verse 35, sinners will vanish from the earth and the wicked will be no more. But that's not what God wants for us. Just like that father in the park. He wanted to be reconciled with his boy, didn't he? He wanted to enjoy that nice day and, and play on the slides and you know enjoy life with him. And that's what our creator and our sustainer wants for us. He wants to be reconciled to us. That we might enjoy with him this beautiful creation that he's made. And notice in verse 31, God himself rejoices in what he's made. And then in verse 34... David rejoices with him. So if you're looking for the meaning of life, here it is. It's to enjoy God, having been reconciled to him through Jesus, his son. He wants us to enjoy. Now sometimes, of course, we don't feel this, do we? We don't feel that joy the whole time. Sometimes life is um, especially hard. Sometimes we get so caught up in our own success or perhaps our own miseries that, that we we forget the God who's who's holding us up. In such times, let us be like David. Let us learn to preach to ourselves. And David's over these two Psalms, he's meditated on God's grace to him, in, in saving him and in creating and sustaining him. Or well, let's do the same. Let's learn to say and pray and sing with david praise the lord oh my soul praise the lord let's pray father you are so great you are so great and we praise you for your greatness we often think about how you save us lord and we take for granted this world this beautiful world that you've made This majestic world which shows us your power and your beauty. We praise you that you're a God of beauty. We praise you for upholding your world. Even the tiny things, the rock badges. We praise you, Lord, for upholding us. For lifting us up in your arms. We praise you, Father, for saving us. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has the power to save us from evil, from chaos. To calm the storm. Help us, Lord, to entrust the lives to him. And we ask that this week we'll be emissaries of your greatness, citizens of your kingdom, pointing out to others just how beautiful and wonderful you are. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.